In 2016, the Bar of Ireland held a series of lectures celebrating the role of barristers and the use of courts at key junctures in the history of our state. Under the guidance of the then Bar Council Chair, now Mr Justice David Barneville of the High Court, a range of legal luminaries presented at Green Street Courthouse near Smithfield Market here in Dublin 7. We are now bringing these informative and engaging lectures to you today in a different format and for a wider audience. In this episode, Engulfed, the impact of independence on the senior Crown Judiciary, delivered by Blona Ruan, Senior Counsel, with an introduction by David Barnable. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thanks very much again for, uh, for coming. Many of you are here on a repeat visit to the, the next uh, installment of the Green Street uh, Lecture Series. Uh, and we're very fortunate this evening that we're going to hear a lecture by Blona Ruan on the topic of the impact of independence on the senior Crown Judiciary. Uh, I, I know I've heard uh, Blona speak about this topic before, and I've read uh, what Blona has written about this before. It's uh, absolutely fascinating, and we are in uh, for an excellent lecture. I've been told to keep this introduction extremely short and to say nothing else. So please welcome Blona Ruan. <laughs> Colleagues, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's a really great honour to participate in this lecture series, which has, I think, encouraged all of us to reflect a little bit more on the role of lawyers and the administration of justice in Irish history. And I thank the Bar Council for the invitation to do so. And I'd also like to congratulate, if I may, Shane Murphy and the chairman, who I think have shown tremendous vision, flair and imagination in putting together uh, and thinking outside the box. Many of the lectures uh, to date concern personalities and cases that reflect the problems created by British rule in Ireland. And this evening I'd like to focus on a very small group of men who in their time were practitioners at the bar. Their political work led to their appointment as senior law officers, whether as solicitor general or attorney general, or sometimes their elections as MPs. And that, in turn, culminated in their appointment to the senior positions of the Irish bench. That was the classic career path of the senior Crown judiciary. They were, however, a little different to the elite of several generations of barristers throughout the 19th century, whose appointment to the bench was determined by the British Conservative or Liberal parties. Their support for unionism or constitutional nationalism decided whether they would reach high legal office, whether as law officer or as a judge. However, unlike many of their tribe, those I will speak to you about this evening were unfortunate enough to be senior judges just at the time when the legal edifice to which they were attached crumbled around them as a result of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Theirs is not a happy tale, but it provides an interesting example of the clash of political and judicial cultures in a revolutionary era, and an insight into the circumstances in which the senior judges, who were used to operating at the top of the pyramid, lost their status as high office holders in the British administration in Ireland. The judiciary, of course, was a vital component of British rule in Ireland. The senior judges were appointed by the Crown and were often referred to as the crown or the king's judiciary. And some of the judges themselves regarded themselves as having a contract with his majesty. Now, after the Government of Ireland Act in 1920, the legal administration of Ireland was divided as between North and South. So, by the time of the treaty in December 1921, the South had a High Court of Appeal, exercising appellate jurisdiction from the king's bench and chancery divisions. And there was also an equivalent structure in the North and overarching both of the Northern and Southern Courts up until December 1922 was the High Court of Appeal for Ireland, consisting of the Lord Chancellor and the Lord Chief Justices of Northern and Southern Ireland and additional judges as required. There were also at that time competing unofficial Sinn Féin Courts, but after the treaty was signed, under pressure from the British government and also from Sir James Craig in Northern Ireland, the Provisional Government suppressed the Sinn Féin Courts 
and maintained instead the existing Crown courts until a new court system was to be established. Immediately after the treaty, a temporary agreement was reached between the British and uh, the Irish Provisional Government, which would allow the Crown Courts to continue to operate. However, that didn't mean that there was a long-term future for the Crown judges within the Free State. The system of appointment of judges in Ireland on a political basis had long been criticised. In a debate in the House of Commons in 1872, Isaac Bosch, then leader of the Irish Home Rule Parliamentary Party at Westminster, attacked the system, arguing instead that appointments should be made on a professional merit base rather than for political service or other considerations. Sergeant Sullivan, then a leading Irish barrister and distinguished constitutional nationalist, was very blunt about how the Irish administration had been damaged by what he described as the spoil system by which judicial offices were misappropriated and awarded to politicians for political services. Apart from political service, religion was also an important factor in the selection of judges, both in 19th century and 20th century Ireland. For a long time, Protestants constituted the vast majority of the judges, and they largely supported the union. Until shortly after Catholic emancipation in 1829, there were no Catholics on the bench, and Catholics were barred from entering the legal profession. In 1837, only one out of 14 senior judges was Catholic. The proportion of Catholics rose after Catholic emancipation significantly, but rather erratically. Largely as a result of pressure from the Irish Parliamentary Party, there was a notable increase in the number of Catholics appointed to the senior judiciary and as law officers from 1910 onwards when Catholics with nationalist credentials were deliberately selected. The Liberal government chose candidates to appease the Home Rule Party and the Catholic Church. However, by 1921, there were still only five Catholics among 12 senior judges, although some of them were in the most senior positions. As of October 1921, two Lords Justices of Appeal, James O'Connor and Stephen Ronan, were Catholic. The Lord Chief Justice, Thomas Maloney, was also a Catholic, and two members of the Chancery Division, Charles O'Connor and John Blake Powell, were also Catholics. The remaining judges, who included the Lord Chancellor, Sir John Ross, Jonathan Pym, John Gordon, John Blake Powell, John Gibson, Arthur Samuels, and William Wiley, were Protestant, and that included one Quaker. That composition did not, of course, reflect the overwhelming predominance of Catholics in the population. By 1921, most of the senior Crown judges who were born and largely educated in Ireland, they included Conservatives, Liberals, Conservative and Liberal Unionists, and Constitutional Nationalists who supported Home Rule. They did not, however, include any Radical Nationalist supporters of Sinn Féin. All of the judges represented a very privileged elite. In many respects, the Catholic judges had a lot more in common with the British establishment in Ireland than they had with their fellow Catholics at a lower social level. All of the judges were well-educated and enjoyed very prominent social status. They were well-paid. Most of them lived in grand style around Merrion and Fitzwilliam squares. The Lord Chancellor, Sir John Ross, lived in a large mansion house out in Oakland, Stillorgan having retired there, having moved from Fitzwilliam Square. Another notable feature, very notable feature, of the senior Crown judiciary in Ireland was the extent of the very valuable patronage that they enjoyed. As senior judges, they could appoint persons to the administrative staff of their own courts. This allowed them to appoint family members to court positions, and Dodd, Pym and O'Connor each had a son acting as registrar of his own court. Such was the value of their patronage that when making his claim to the British Treasury in 1924 for loss of office, following his retirement after the establishment of the new courts, James O'Connor claimed compensation for his loss of patronage. He claimed that a position within his patronage was of some family advantage. His circuit registrarship was worth 300 pounds a year and this position was held by his son, who was a young barrister. Overall, by December 1921, despite the number of Catholics in their ranks, 
in their political, religious, and socioeconomic composition, the senior judges did not reflect in any way the large part of the Catholic population, which was by then increasingly radical nationalist. Another particularly important characteristic of the senior crown judiciary was that they had additional roles which placed them at the very centre of the British executive in Ireland. It was common for a senior judge to be a member of the Irish Privy Council, whose members constituted an integral element of the British administration in Ireland. Privy councillors assisted the Lord Lieutenant in his executive and administrative functions. They issued orders in council and considered legal issues. In addition, when the Lord Lieutenant was absent, they could be sworn in to act as Lord Justices and Governors of Ireland to act in the Lord Lieutenant's place or Viceroy in regard to political or other issues. Thus, for example, on the 26th of May 1916, in the aftermath of the 1916 Rising, Lord Chief Justice Cherry and Mr Justice James Wiley, who were then Lords Justices and Governors of Ireland, issued a proclamation continuing the state of martial law throughout Ireland. These extrajudicial functions involved them thus directly in the executive responsibilities of the, the British administration. Apart from the executive activity associated with their formal judicial roles, other informal political activity by the judges occurred, although this was sometimes behind the scenes. During the War of Independence, the Catholic Lord Chief Justice James O'Connor was deeply involved with the Catholic clergy in arranging a truce. He met Lloyd George in Downing Street for that purpose, as well as being involved in facilitating secret discussions between Craig, Carson and de Valera, organised at times from his own home in Northumberland Road. Judge William Wiley gave political advice to the Lord Lieutenant while a judge. Judge Samuels, former Attorney General, gave political advice to Lloyd George. Even though the judges, in exercising their judicial functions, enjoyed formal independence, it's quite clear that their judicial culture at that time inevitably associated them with the interests and mindset of the executive in a manner which made real distance from executive interests and the appearance of that virtually impossible. Even one of their number, James O'Connor, felt compelled to recognise the existence of at least some political bias and the bad image of the old judicial system when he said, political corruption is unknown and the intrusion of political bias has been less common than popular opinion supposes. The Crown judges were deeply resented by senior radical nationalist lawyers and their appraisal was very far from the critical but ultimately affectionate view of the likes of Morris Healy in the well-loved tome, The Old Monster Circuit. Their comments were visceral. Two future senior judges of the Free State who had a critical impact on the way in which our judicial system developed had extreme distrust of the Crown judges. Hugh Kennedy, then the first Attorney General and later first Chief Justice, lambasted them in 1923 in a letter to W.T. Cosgrave, then president of the pro-treaty Executive Council. Kennedy referred to our evil experiences of the bench in the past, its bad repute and position as an enemy institution in the eyes of the people. He commented on their political roles as privy councillors and Lords Justices and Governors of Ireland saying, all of this was a flagrant violation of one of the fundamental principles of the British Constitution that we were supposed to be enjoying, namely the principle of judicial independence of the executive. Kennedy pointed out that, by way of example, the proclamation suppressing Sinn Féin had been signed by judges. He vividly encapsulated the reality of the two aspects of the judges' roles, saying, a judge might drop into the castle of a morning on his way to court and as part of the executive make an order in council and then go on to the bench and try an issue as between the executive and the people. Kennedy also criticised the involvement of the Lord Chief Justice Thomas Maloney, who was a Catholic 
and a constitutional nationalist for his participation in the opening of the Parliament of Southern Ireland in 1921 under the highly controversial Government of Ireland Act, at a time when Maloney was also adjudicating in habeas corpus cases during the War of Independence. Cosgrave took on board Kennedy's criticism of those dual roles and referred to it critically in the Doyle subsequently. George Gavin Duffy, the last of the Irish negotiators to sign the treaty and future president of the High Court, also made his distaste for some of the Crown judges crystal clear. He referred in 1922 to the corruptness of the Crown judges whose attitude, he claimed, had led to the creation of the Doyle Courts. He described them as having repeatedly proved themselves crooked in regard to the grant of relief by way of habeas corpus. He even suggested that the Lord Chancellor or the Lord Chief Justice might resign in order to facilitate a short-term appointment of a friend in his place for the purposes of accruing a valuable entitlement to a judicial pension at the expense of the Free State. Writing to the Freeman's Journal on the 19th of August 1922, Gavin Duffy publicly attacked the Crown judges. And I should interject here and say, Gavin Duffy had been a minister in the Doyle Ministry following the uh, treaty. So he was a very high profile politician at this stage. He said, most of the Crown judges a year or two ago would have welcomed any opportunity of lodging our present rulers in jail, fully persuaded that there could be no better way of serving king and country. The war record, he said, of that judiciary is still branded upon the public memory. Apart from resentment of the senior Crown judges, there was also resentment of the county court judges who were believed to have awarded excessive damages for the innumerable criminal injury claims following the Black and Tan and other aspects of the War of Independence, which were given large, as they sought, compensation at the expense of the ordinary taxpayer. There was also bitterness towards the lowest judicial rank, the notorious resident magistrates or removables, who, although based in particular districts, were removable or transferable at the will of the executive if a strong-minded man was needed elsewhere. A good deal of the raw feeling within Sinn Féin towards the Crown Judiciary was because of critically important judgments related to convictions carrying a death sentence or penal servitude which were delivered by them at the height of the War of Independence. There was a particularly notorious decision of Orvie Allen given in February 1921 in which the King's Bench Division unanimously accepted that in a state of war, a military court enforcing martial law in a martial law area could impose a death sentence, even where there was no statutory power to do so, and furthermore, that the Restoration of Order Act 1920 did not prevent that. They held that during the state of war, there was no jurisdiction to prevent the military court's action. Allen was followed quickly afterwards in similar vein in April 1921 by other unanimous decisions of the King Guard and others and the King Ronain and Mulcahy against General Strickland. Then there was a very different approach taken by Charles O'Connor, the Catholic master of the roles in Egan and McCready, a case in which the future Attorney General, Hugh Kennedy, appeared for the applicant, Mr. Egan. O'Connor's decision on the 26th of July suggested that the earlier decisions were strongly influenced by the personal disposition and outlook of the judges. He refused to follow Allen and concluded that the military were constrained by the Restoration of Order Act 1920 and were not entitled to try the applicant and he granted habeas corpus. Not only was the outcome, but also the approach and tone of O'Connor's judgment, which emphasised the need for a fair trial, strikingly different to that of his colleagues. He acknowledged that his King's Bench colleagues had taken a different view and that his own professional background at the bar and experience on the bench had been on the chancery side, whereas his colleagues in Allen had more experience in criminal law. However, he observed that he wasn't bound by their judgment and that an applicant for habeas corpus was entitled to proceed from judge to judge in the hope of obtaining an order. He maintained that it was his duty as a judge to form his own independent view 
and having considered the other judgments, and if he was unable to follow them, he was obliged to disagree. He quoted the powerful dictum of Coburn CJ in the Jamaica case, which had been unsuccessfully relied upon by Tim Healy, counsel for the accused in Allen, which said, there are considerations more important even than shortening the temporary duration of an insurrection. Among them are the eternal and immutable principles of justice. Dramatic events following O'Connor's judgment propelled him then into direct confrontation with the British administration. The authorities initially refused to honour the writ of habeas corpus granted by O'Connor due to their having lodged an appeal against his decision. Their tactic of appealing followed the decision of the House of Lords just two days after O'Connor's decision on 28 July in Clifford and O'Sullivan, which concluded that an appeal could in fact be brought. When the matter came before O'Connor again on 29 July, he was undaunted by the authorities' refusal to release the prisoner on foot of the appeal. He immediately ordered a writ of attachment and committal for contempt to issue against the military commanders. That caused the British authorities to back down and they decided to release the prisoner pending the hearing of the appeal. In the light of this, the following day, O'Connor on consent put a stay on the writ for attachment. This decision answer angered Macready, a critically important linchpin of British rule at the time, who threatened to refuse to comply with such decisions in the future. Macready had very close links to Lloyd George and had been selected personally amidst acute difficulties in coordinating the military and police response in dealing with the increased rebellion. Macready's dissatisfaction was such that he threatened to resign. Now, while there are various views expressed on the merits of these habeas corpus decisions, the important point for present purposes is that the very different approach of O'Connor suggested to many that the decisions were influenced by the personal disposition and outlook of the judges. The Freeman's Journal contrasted the views of O'Connor and those of his colleagues, saying, the master of the roles has given an awakening shock to even those callous consciences that were prepared to acquiesce in any mutilation of ancient law and civic right in Ireland by the militarists. When only a few months after giving those judgments, negotiations began for the treaty in October 1921, the judges immediately feared for their positions and they immediately lobbied Lloyd George. The British regarded themselves as having to protect their own judges and they acted quickly. Article 10 was put into the treaty and provided that judges who retired or were discharged would be compensated for loss of office. However, the detail had to be worked out later in the constitution, which had yet to be drafted. So despite having secured that protection, a long and very difficult limbo period ensued before the Crown judges found out what that meant. There was, however, a very sharp change in the atmosphere after the treaty, when the treatyites took over. In March 1922, the provisional government's dismissive attitude to the Crown judiciary was publicly expressed in the Doyle by Eamon Duggan, then Minister for Home Affairs, when he announced that the British courts had ceased to exist, having been taken over by the provisional government, and that they were now allowed to carry on during the transition period pending the establishment of the Free State. The Crown judges who were worried got very little information from the provisional government about their intentions and had instead to rely on the British to keep them informed and they made several representations to them. The Lord Chancellor, John Ross, who was a staunch unionist, was concerned that the provisional government's draft constitution could reflect their own interpretation of the terms of the treaty, which he said was very loosely framed and might be completely distorted in the constitution. He feared that a draft constitution allowing the new Irish parliament to remove the existing judges at will would be impossible to change if it were put to the electorate. In May 1922, the British government established a cabinet subcommittee on the position of the judges to look into the issue of suitable arrangements for them. British approval for the terms of the Constitution was necessary for the further implementation of the treaty. 
and in anticipation of a general election on the 15th of June, the Provisional Government produced a draft at negotiations in London at the end of May, and they sought British approval for its contents. The draft was utterly unacceptable to the British in a number of important respects, broadly because it didn't reflect at all the Dominion status that had been given under the treaty, and it caused complete consternation and practically a breakdown with the threat of war. As the British also noted at a less serious level, the draft constitution also made no reference at all to the compensation for the judges. Although there was a general reference in Article 74, which merely said that Parliament and the Executive Council would have to pass legislation to implement the treaty. The British insisted that the draft was to be revised and to confirm specifically that the existing official British courts would have to continue to exercise the same jurisdiction and a judge of those courts in office when the new constitution came into force would be able to continue as a member of the court and hold office on the same tenure and on the same terms as before unless in the case of Supreme and County Court judges he decided he wanted to resign. Furthermore, any Supreme or County Court judge not appointed to the new courts was to be treated as if he had retired as a result of the change of government and those arrangements went into the Constitution. However, yet again, the detail was not there and the Crown Judiciary at this stage were getting extremely worried because the country at this stage had disintegrated into civil war. In June, they told the British that the compensation settlement should be fixed immediately and should be quite irrespective of any consideration of the probability of their re-employment by the Free State Government for the appointment of analogous duties. They claimed that an individual judge should be free to decide conscientiously whether or not to become a judge of the Free State and shouldn't suffer a financial pen penalty if he chose to do so. At a meeting with British representatives on the 6th of July, Ross and Maloney, who had travelled over to London, indicated that the judges considered it their duty to serve the Free State as long as they reasonably could, on fair and proper terms, their pensions and compensation to abate during such service. They also wanted an assurance that if a judge took up a judgeship in the Free State, and if continuance of that office proved impossible, the British government would then treat him as if he hadn't done so. Meanwhile, the Crown Judiciary were working in extremely difficult conditions. They had already been regarded as legitimate targets for assassination by militant Republicans. When the four courts were occupied and destroyed at the start of the Civil War, they had removed themselves to the King's Inns to operate the courts and then they went on later to Dublin Castle. Inevitably, the judges were under immense personal pressure. Lord Chief Justice Maloney gave a very strong lead in preserving an appearance of stability during that period. One sympathetic observer at the time gave a very evocative image of Maloney's leadership and courage when he said, confidence was utterly shaken during those momentous days and it looked as though anarchy was going to gain control. But the firmness and dignity of the Lord Chief Justice when he established his own court at the end of a large room and allotted their respective places to the other courts did as much as anything else to restore a sense of security. And his personal example, in arriving punctually at his work, regardless of all threats of assassination, did as much as that of any man to strengthen the morale of the country. Maloney's claim, calm and courage, emerges also in an account of William Wiley, who recorded how, during the War of Independence, at a time when Wiley said they were supposed to be shot on sight, Maloney elected to go out on the Assizes to Munster which was regarded by the judges as the suicide circuit. Wiley only went, he admitted himself, because he had no choice. At one stage, when they had to refer to transfer by train from Tralee to Cork, the special train, which carried troops and police, was threatened with ambush. Wiley recounted how Maloney calmly wrapped himself in a blanket, lay down and fell asleep, leaving Wiley anxiously wide awake reading a detective novel for diversion. However, despite Maloney's brave public face, a glimpse into the reality of his stressed mindset 
emerges in a letter he wrote in May 1922 to a British official when he admitted, to us who live here and who are doing our best amidst difficulties and dangers to stem the tide of anxiety, there are no illusions and we're simply awaiting to see will the tide turn or engulf us. Maloney acknowledged the praise for their efforts at continuing the operation of the courts and the King's Inns, but he recognised that ironically, this had really infuriated the extremists who thought, as he said, by destroying the forecourts, they had destroyed us. He blamed the, free, the provisional government for generating hostility towards them, and he believed that they wanted him to go, and he had in any event resolved to depart if his judicial independence were compromised. The senior Crown judges were themselves well aware that the recent habeas corpus decisions had provoked huge resentment towards them, and they feared that it could lead to their removal from office. In March 1922, Ross had informed Churchill of his fear that the electorate might pressurise the Irish government to remove a judge in certain cases where the judge's decisions, though right in law, may have given offence to some of the people in recent or past times. Ross was concerned that the judges might be dismissed and even their pensions imperiled, which he believed would destroy the very palladium of British liberty, the independence of the judges, which had been practically inviolable since the time of the Stuarts. The Crown judges ascribed the ill feeling as stemming from a lack of understanding of their judicial role on the part of the Irish people. In a memorandum submitted by them to the Home Secretary in July 1922, they commented, the Irish people have not been educated to the view that judges are above the executive and must act uninfluenced by them. There will always be the danger that a judgment in accordance with the law will prove unpopular and that the judge will be penalised therefore. The senior Crown judges thus believed that they had shown independence. And it's worth noting that despite their link to the executive in Ireland, in 1920, the Crown judiciary had privately successfully resisted attempts by the British government to restore order by means of establishing a special tribunal comprising three judges to try cases without a jury. The judges refused to participate in that proposal. Although their resistance to this strategy suggested an independent attitude towards the executive, the reality was that there was considerable ill feeling amongst the rad radical nationalists towards them. They don't seem to have realised that apart from the habeas corpus cases, their structural connections with the executive meant that to the scrutinising eyes of Kennedy, Gavin Duffy, Cosgrave and the like, they could never be regarded as having been independent. Just like Maloney, Ross was likewise feeling the pressure personally. He believed his own resignation would be called for, and by August 1922, he sent a memorandum to the British Lord Chancellor in which he set out his personal stall, outlining in a CV his own skills, which he argued equipped him for a variety of other legal work in a British context. In September, he described the judges as being in a state of great anxiety as regards their future, and he perceived anarchy and Bolshevism everywhere. Ross was right to be concerned. When the arrangements were finalised in December 1922, his own position as Lord Chancellor was abolished overnight. In October 1922, the British Cabinet Subcommittee on the position of the judges began to focus on the detail of the compensa compensation proposals and they drew up draft arrangements. However much the British wanted to protect their judges, the draft proposals reflected the emerging cold reality of the cost implications of compensation. The British cast a canny eye on the what the compensation would involve and ensured that there would be no chance for overpayment. The British government refused to allow a judge to receive full pay on retirement, while at the same time being able to accept a judgeship in the free state, thus receiving payment from both sides. A suspension was to apply where the free state salary was greater. There was also an important requirement whereby a judge would have to accept a judicial position in the free state if it were offered to him, except for good reason 
as determined by a committee of senior judges, or else his position financially would be adjusted to take effect to ensure no overcompensation. The judges successfully resisted that pressure to take uh, that obligation to take up a judgeship in the Free State. They stood on a point of principle and in the process articulated the attitude of some of them to the likely character of the Free State. They said that some of them had a conscientious objection to serving as judges of the Free State. They argued that the new positions would be different. There would be different duties to address the change in the national spirit which was directed towards de-anglicisation, including of its jurisprudence and judicial custom. Regarding their independence, they argued that removal by address to both Houses of Parliament for misconduct was not the same as removal by a vote of both Houses of the Oireachtas, whose future composition, aims and objects would be so different. Under the new constitutional arrangements ultimately worked out in December, the judges were able to retire with a pension from December 1922. When the new courts were established, they were allowed to retire on a pension of two-thirds of their salary. And in addition, an annual allowance for a reasonable period, having regard to the otherwise likely continuation in office as a judge, which, when added to the pension, brought them up to the same amount as the full salary. The pension and allowance were to be adjusted in the event of a judge becoming a judge of the free state. There was, however, no obligation to accept a judgeship in the free state. The new courts were not established until 1924 in June. And so in the meantime, the Crown judges continued to function as best they could under the new order. The provisional government was determined, however, to ensure that until they were, new courts were established, they would keep some control over the Crown judiciary and prevent them from intruding into political matters. Some issues created tension between the judges and the government. Symbolism was very important to the new regime and the failure of Lord Chief Justice Maloney to alter the reference to Southern Ireland, a phrase that emanated from the bitterly resented Government of Ireland Act, on, which, on writs that were issued, so as to indicate the new source of authority deeply angered Kennedy, and he demanded in pretty irate correspondence as Attorney General that the proper title of the Irish Free State had to be used. There were also territorial spats over the ownership of the Lord Chancellor's mace and the appointment of a court stockbroker. Of more substance was the difficulty that arose in November 1922 over the transmission of land registry documents by Maloney to Belfast. That created deep hostility and Cosgrave himself launched into the fray and intervened to stop it. From the provisional government's point of view, this was a strategic issue relevant to the work of the intended boundary commission to determine the boundary between North and South. The importance of the strategic issue of the transmission of the documents into which Maloney had intruded can be seen from the fact that even after an intergovernmental agreement was reached on the transfer of documents, a year later, Kennedy had still not sent the documents to the intense frustration of the British. After countless reminders, Mark Sturgis, an unusually colorful senior British official who had been based in Dublin Castle, complained about the disgraceful delay and he was suspicious of the real reason for the delay in sending the documents. He commented, probably only half jokingly, in language not common on Whitehall files, that Kennedy, Kennedy as an obstructionist, is unequaled. He just sits down on things like a great fat frog and doesn't get up again. Ironically, at a jurisprudential level, there was relatively little friction between the executive and the Crown judiciary. Judicial challenges to military action were reduced in the initial phase of the Free State because the courts had already concluded that there was a state of armed rebellion in the state and that remained the position until August 1923. Three particular cases need brief comment. First of all, November 1922, Charles O'Connor, gave another extremely important decision 
which was politically favourable to the provisional government at the height of the civil war in the Childers case. There, he refused uh, an order of habeas corpus and held that there was still a state of war in existence, thereby validating Childers' trial by military court, which led very controversially to Childers' execution shortly afterwards. In another important decision in 1923, in the King Murphy and the military governor of Mountjoy Prison, there was a challenge to the validity of the manner of summoning the new Senate. O'Connor upheld the procedure that had been adopted. Had that challenge been successful, it could have proved extremely embarrassing and indeed politically destabilizing for Cosgrave's government. However, in contrast, in one case, there was very sharp confrontation between the judges and the government. In 1923, Cosgra Cosgrave's government had passed legislation to prevent the release of 12,000 Republican prisoners at the end of the Civil War. And in July, August 1923, the King O'Brien and the governor of North Dublin military camp saw a prisoner seeking habeas corpus. Kennedy himself, as Attorney General, appeared on behalf of the authorities in answer to the writ. He didn't get a very friendly response. Lord Chief Justice Maloney and Lord Justice Ronan were scathing in, about his arguments and rejected his claim that the legislation prevented the release. They effectively lectured him on the provisions of the Constitution in which he himself had taken an important part in drafting. The effect of their decision was that the government was obliged at ultra short notice to pass emergency legislation to prevent the release of the prisoners under cover of a special declaration that such legislation was necessary to preserve public peace and safety. When the new courts were established in June 1924, the important question came up as to the appointment of the new senior judges. Few of the remaining senior judges were reappointed. Three senior Crown judges had died in the intervening period from, since the treaty, Gordon, Gibson and Blake Powell. Some of the others were by then too old in any event because the new system now imposed an upper age limit of 72 for the first time. Only two were asked to serve, but it seems unlikely that many of them would have been willing to accept a position in any event. Another limiting factor was the fact that the Constitution required the judge to take an oath upholding the Constitution and given that that constitution reflected the treaty and dominion status, it wouldn't necessarily have been very palatable to committed Republicans or Unionists. Cosgrave was to claim years later that judicial appointments at that time were made in order of merit and precedence. While there were doubtless many reasons which influenced the selection, it is nonetheless striking that most of those former judges who were selected by Cosgrave's government for the superior courts were not obviously hostile to the new regime. The Catholic master of the rolls, Charles O'Connor, was offered the second most senior position in the new judiciary. The rather political view of our friend Mark Sturgis from Dublin Castle was that O'Connor had positioned himself well with the new regime. Another appointee was William Wiley, who had helped to further peace negotiations leading to the truce in 1921, and favoured dominion status. He continued as a judicial commissioner for the Land Commission. He hadn't been involved in the Allen case during the War of Independence. Furthermore, although prosecuting in the 1916 trials, he had helped out Cosgrave in, on procedural issues in the absence of a defence counsel and allowed Cosgrave the benefit of uh, his impartial assistance. A county court judge, William Johnston, a Dubliner of northern extraction, a Presbyterian and friend of Kennedy, was appointed to the High Court. He had also made clear his political allegiance to the new state, having set, sent a political subscription to his friend, Kennedy, who then passed it on to Cosgrave. The political outlook of another Catholic appointee, Thomas O'Shocknessy, formerly the last recorder of Dublin, was the chief magistrate of Dublin, who sat here in Green Street is less clear, but he's likely to have been a unionist. But it was always envisaged that his time on the bench was going to be very short because he was already very old. And in fact, they brought in a special amendment to the Courts of Justice Act to allow him to go on to 75 if he wanted. As I sit here, where he sat for so many years, he was appointed in 1905, it would probably be remiss to pass 
too quickly over Judge O'Shaughnessy without saying something more about him. Born in 1851, he was the son of a solicitor educated in Belvedere and Queen's College, Galway. Called to the bar, 1874, took silk, 1889. He was involved, probably his most important case, was involvement as uh, counsel for the plaintiffs in that famous case that ensued following that awful railway tragedy in Armagh, uh, when a huge number of people were killed, including a large number of children. I think that seems to have been one of the critical uh, points of his career at the bar. He became a member of the, he was appointed recorder, 1905. He became a member of the Irish Privy Council, 1912. And he was also a member of the Reform Club. So that gives you a fairly good idea where he was coming from. He was also offered the opportunity to stand as a unionist, as a parliamentary candidate in Glasgow, but he declined that. He was evidently a man of very strong views. Cahar Davis, the former president of the High Court, recorded in a memoir that at a meeting of the Medical Society in University College Dublin in November 1914, O'Shaughnessy was there to propose a vote of thanks to the reader of a paper. However, he walked out in high dudgeon in protest when the students applauded a suggestion that the evidence about German atrocities in Belgium was not convincing other than in a few cases. He was also interested in social and housing issues his obituaries suggest that he had genuine concern for those appearing before him, and he was well known in literary and theatrical circles. A long-term resident of Fitzwilliam Square, he was described by one writer as a well-known Dublin personality, and more colourfully, if less flatteringly, as a top-hatted, cape-clothed, tiny, arrogant personage by another. Like his senior colleagues, O'Shaughnessy had serious concerns for his own personal safety. This emerges from a memorandum on an official state file which recounts a minor event that took place here in Green Street in October 1922. In the midst of his day's work sitting here listening to cases, O'Shaughnessy's mind was also directed to arrangements to ensure that he would be entitled to retain possession of an automatic pistol and ammunition which he had been given permission to hold by General Boyd, the commander of the Dublin District Division, at the height of the War of Independence in January 1921. The memorandum on the file is addressed to the Minister for Home Affairs and was written by Inspector McGarry of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, who wrote, With reference to enclosures attached, I beg to state that on the 13th inst, while I was at the Criminal Sessions Green Street Courthouse, the Right Honourable the Recorder handed to me the envelope containing copies of a permit dated 21st January 1921 and granted by General Boyd, and he requested me to have them forwarded to the proper authority so that he will have legal authority for keeping same in his residence at 64 Fitzwilliam Square. The file states that no permits will be granted to civilians, but I would respectfully suggest to the Chief Commissioner that his Lordship is an exception. Permission was duly granted. The authorities clearly recognised that O'Shaughnessy was a potential target. And within a matter of weeks, Liam Lynch, the arch-republican, had issued orders for the killing of the senior figures associated with key political institutions. And the TD, Sean Hales, was killed within a matter of weeks on his way to the Doyle. O'Shaughnessy lasted only a year as a High Court judge, and he retired in 1925 on his 74th birthday and was knighted in the New Year's Honours List of 1927 for his public service. Apart from the, uh, those appointments of former Crown judges, Cosgrave's government also appointed new blood. Three other Catholics, obvious candidate Chief Justice Hugh Kennedy, President Tim Sullivan, who had assisted Kennedy in some of the important political trials, including that of Childers, and James Murnaghan. They also appointed a Protestant and former Unionist, Gerald Fitzgibbon, to the Supreme Court, and James Creed Meredith, a Protestant who unusually was a prominent radical nationalist in the High Court. Fitzgibbon had shown as a TD during the uh, interim period when the Constitution was adopted and right through to 1923, that he would give loyal support to the government, not because he really liked them, but because they were a force of law and order and he couldn't possibly tolerate the breakdown of law and order in society. That meant that the new superior courts included four non-Catholics, originally from the Anglo-Irish or Southern Unionist tradition, 
and out of a total of nine positions, just five of them were Catholic. The appointments made of some former Crown judges were politically safe for Cosgrave's government, and they gave a limited, but nonetheless politically useful, continuity with the old judiciary. They also reassured both the sizeable Southern Unionist minority population and the British who were watching everything, but in a way that was unlikely to give rise to any politically based judicial resistance to Cosgrave and the new state. They also sent an important signal of religious tolerance. Indeed, Kennedy later asserted confidently in 1928 that although the population of the Free State was largely Catholic, the majority of the judges of the High Court were Protestants. But he said, the courts have the confidence of the people and nobody cares what the religion of the judges is. In the wider context also, the appointments echo some of the appointment of many non-Catholic Southern Unions to the Senate, the upper house of the newly established legislature in 1922, to facilitate their involvement in the new administration. One of the most notable of these was James Campbell, Lord Glenavy, who was later elected Cahirlock Chairman of the Senate, of the Shannon, a position he occupied till 1928. Glenavy had been very strongly associated with Ulster Unionism and had previously held the positions of Irish Attorney General, Irish Lord Chief Justice and Irish Lord Chancellor. After the new appointments were sorted out and the new judges had retired, the judges then had to face the difficult process of claiming compensation. This was an uncomfortable experience for them, where they were applicants rather than adjudicators. They made their claims to a committee of senior British judges. This was a sympathetic group, but the process was nonetheless stringent and the judges had to submit medical evidence. The British Treasury argued strongly that the younger judges derived a benefit from early retirement, which provided them with greater leisure and the opportunity of other employment, and thus they should get lower compensation. As a result, a somewhat reduced level of compensation was awarded to them. This particularly angered James O'Connor, who was aged 52, and Wiley, who was then aged 42. Some insight into the tensions that the compensation process generated, particularly in Wiley's case, emerges from a memorandum of a Treasury official, a Mr. J. M. Trickett, who attended the hearing of the claims, albeit that he was not exactly an impartial observer. Trickett opined that Maloney's appearance at the committee had unfavorably impressed them. With his bitter and prolix advocacy, and a medley of diatribe against the Treasury and Irish anecdote. Trickett described Wiley's appearance before the committee as the sorry spectacle of an angry young man holding judicial office, making a violent attack on the Treasury for what he described as scurvy treatment. According to Trickett, Wiley claimed that he had been encouraged by Treasury officials to accept a free state judgment, which position, allegedly, Wiley described as very distasteful. Wiley actually threatened to resign his newly accepted position if it caused a diminution in his entitlement to compensation for Britain. The committee sought to discourage him from doing so. Wiley argued that the government of Ireland might not last another two years, and he had no confidence in the pension rights attaching to his free state judgeship. In the event, he remained a free state judge, retiring eventually in 1936 on pension. A glimpse into the realities of the work, the way of life and attitude of some of the older judges at that time emerges from some of the compensation claims. From the claim of Lord Justice Ronan, who was already 76 and in frail health and who was to die the following year, it is clear that the demands of his judicial position were far from onerous and that generally he sat for only some limited periods each week. Ronan's description of his life, which was given as part of his argument that he was very likely to continue on as a judge and thereby would get a better allowance, reveals that he had by then a very restricted life. 
largely confined to pottering round the environs of Fitzwilliam Square where he lived, other than when he was brought up to the King's Inns for sittings of the court. On the other hand, Judge William Dodd, the probate judge, was an energetic man of 80. According to Mr. Trickett, Dodd impressed the committee, and Trickett himself regarded Dodd as the least grasping of the applicants. Clearly reluctant to retire, Dodd's continuing zest for work and his remarkable ability to adapt, even in such extraordinarily difficult conditions, were evident from the observations he made on the impact of his work of the destruction of many vital official records that had occurred when the forecourts was under siege. He said that it rendered his work absorbingly interesting. The solutions which he devised to cope with the loss of such records he characterised as novel, suited to the emergency. And after receiving compensation, the judges were then left to pretty much their own devices after 1924. The bubble truly burst. None of the retiring judges were offered judicial positions in England, as might have been anticipated. This was particularly notable in the case of the most senior judges, Ross, who was 69, Maloney, who was 59, and James O'Connor, who was 52, who all went to live in England initially, although they drifted back to Ireland later in differing degrees. Ross was a peer and had probably hoped, as did Lord Glenavy, that he might be appointed to succeed Lord Atkinson in the House of Lords. But Atkinson remained firmly rooted in the House of Lords and didn't retire until 1928. Ross wrote his autobiography, but he had no other prominent legal office. Maloney fared fairly well. He was given a peerage in 1925 and he became involved in penal reform in England, becoming a chairman of a Home Office Committee on the Treatment of Juvenile Offenders in 1925, and he later undertook penal reform work in Ireland. He also became Vice-Chancellor of Trinity College, as well as a director of a prominent bank. Like some members of the bar, such as Sergeant Sullivan and Morris Healy, James O'Connor commenced practice at the English bar, and he quickly took silk. The change, however, was not a success. His health suffered. He was, however, knighted and was made a chairman of both the Railways Commission and the Irish Coal Commissions in Ireland. He had originally been a solicitor and he later sought to resume his practice as a solicitor in Ireland. That gave rise to the well-known case before Chief Justice Kennedy in which he considered the public policy issues relating to former judges appearing in court and he required that O'Connor give certain undertakings preventing him from appearing in court. O'Connor died in 1931. Samuels, who was aged 72 when he retired, died in 1925. Dodd and Pym effectively retired. Dodd lived on until 1930, and Pym died in 1949, aged 90. So all in all, it proved a rather traumatic experience for the last of the senior Crown judges, it was not the career end that any of them had envisaged. Their prestigious roles as senior legal office holders had collapsed around them, and their inner reactions can be readily imagined from the comment made by Judge Dodd, who described himself as having been driven from the King's bench. They had, of course, made a valuable contribution in enabling the official court system to continue in operation in enormously difficult circumstances and at very real personal risk to themselves. This helped to provide, them with, to provide the country with some degree of stability and also provided an affirmation of the rule of law at a very critical time. But in the end, that wasn't enough to save them. The political reality was that by 1922, many of them were heavily compromised in the eyes of the new radical nationalist leaders, such as Kennedy and Gavin Duffy who were themselves later to become highly influential judges in the new regime. It is clear, however, that the antipathy that they had towards the Crown judges was not based on religious grounds, but rather on political grounds. The Gulf also reflects a deeper clash of judicial cultures, one 
long established in Ireland, and the other just newly emerging. The judicial climate had seismically shifted beyond the control of these once powerful leaders. And now the new regime was trying to establish a new judicial system under which there would be much greater structural independence for the Ireland of the future. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Blona Ruan, Senior Counsel, deliver her lecture on the impact of independence on the Senior Crown Judiciary as part of the Green Street Lecture Series in 2016. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more of these lectures, log on to lawlibrary.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.